Tim, I could, <clears throat> I could just sit there and listen to you go on and on and on about me. I bet you could. You know, with the light in my eyes, I can't see your uh, facial expressions. And uh, so I don't, uh, I don't know if you're laughing or crying, uh, but whatever it is, do it out loud so that I get some kind of feedback. <clears throat> it's altogether possible, oh, the lights are going down. It's altogether possible that I might say something this evening that uh, you wouldn't agree with. Uh, we probably won't have time tonight, but I'm going to be around tomorrow. Uh, so you can, you can voice your disagreement with me, and uh, then, of course, I can explain how you're wrong so we can have good, good discussion together. I, uh, I feel honored to be invited into this uh, special occasion. Uh, for decades now, you have been on the forefront of missions, and uh, you obviously have been on the cutting edge for, uh, golly, what, 150-plus years. So I'm not sure. It makes me feel like a young whippersnapper. Uh, I'm not sure if I can give you anything new, but perhaps we can reinforce some of the things that you have learned and put into practice uh, over the years. It was... 48 years ago tonight that uh, I was in the jungles of Vietnam. I see enough gray hair around here to know that uh, some of you remember that. That was, that was the conflict of the day. <clears throat> if, you didn't have, uh, if, you, if you didn't get a college deferment, uh, you were kind of rounded up and uh, put a gun in your hand and sent you off to the war. I thought that this would be the most wasted year of my life. But God had other plans. I found myself surrounded with a, a lot of young men who came from difficult backgrounds, uh, who, who brought some serious baggage with them. The, uh, the drugs over there were very cheap and very pure. And so a lot of those kids got strung out pretty badly on those drugs. And I was in a position where I could help set up a, uh, an amnesty drug abuse program uh, for those kids that wanted to get straightened out before they came back to the States and uh, set up high school GED courses and even some college courses so that they could come back into the States uh, with a head start on their education. Uh, God used that experience in my life to ignite within me a sense of calling. And so I got out of the military, went back to my business career, but the faces of those young men would not leave me alone. And so eventually I cut the ties with my business career and launched a program in Atlanta with the juvenile court working with kids that are on probation. Didn't take very long to figure out that you, you can't work very effectively with a, a troubled young person apart from their family situations. And so that, that prompted me to go back to school to learn how to work with families, and we expanded the program to include the parents and the family structure, only to realize that you can't work very effectively with a struggling family apart from the environment that impacts on them every time they step out of the door, which pushed me to get more involved with what was happening in the street and with the police and in the schools. And over time, I realized that if you were going to change an environment, clearly the best way of doing that is to, is to become a part of that environment, to to work from the inside to effect change. Now that's an insight that one doesn't share readily with one's spouse. Uh, matter of fact, we were uh, just in the process of building Peggy's new dream home, a little farther out of the city. 
And I remember the night that it happened. It was, we'd gone to bed early. Uh, we were about five weeks away from moving into that new home. That's when you're picking out the, the carpet and the light fixtures and the cabinetry. This is high energy time. And Peggy just wanted to talk. And I said, I don't think you want to talk to me tonight. And she said, oh, no, what's wrong? And that's when I came out with it. I said, I don't think God wants us moving further out of the city. I think he wants us moving into the city. Well, that was a bad night. <laughs> In the morning, Peggy says, is, is this your idea or God's idea? Because if it's your idea, I'm not interested at all. She said, I want it in writing. <clears throat> and so it was, for the first time I articulated in a seven-page letter what, what I understood to be a call of God. And she took that around to her girlfriends, our small group leader, our pastors, to get third, fourth, fifth opinions. And she concluded that at least I believed that it was a calling. And if it is... What choice do you really have? So it's a tribute to Peggy's spiritual depth. She let go of her vision to raise our two boys in a, in a good environment, with good schools, healthy place to raise kids, the kind of upbringing and environment that she had enjoyed as a child, and exchange that for raising your family in a, a high-crime neighborhood, which seemed like a, a dangerous place to raise kids. Well, that was about a 10-year learning curve there. I'd been commuting into the city uh, for about 10 years, doing programs with families uh, in a couple adjacent communities. I'd gotten use of an old Presbyterian church that had closed down. Uh, so I set up shop there, and we had started... Uh, a lot of different, pro the kind of programs that you would naturally start in a community of need, the clothes closet, the food pantry, those sorts of things. The program that clearly created the most excitement was what we called our Adopt-A-Family. Uh, it was a Christmas program. That was uh, when I would give the names of kids that were not going to get anything for Christmas to caring people from around the city who would go shopping and then on Christmas Eve, they would bring those toys to the homes of those children. And it created a lot of excitement. But the first year we were living in the neighborhood, uh, I uh, was really, I had the time then to be involved with, uh, uh, in the homes of some of those recipient families when, when the gift-bearing families arrived. And that's when I saw something that that I had never noticed before. Uh, the kids, of course, were all excited. It's like Santa Claus is coming. The moms were, were gracious, perhaps a little embarrassed. But if there was a dad in the household, he just disappeared. He was gone out the back door. And it dawned on me what was happening was that these parents were being exposed for their inability to provide and, and the moms would endure that indignity for the sake of the kids. But it was just more than a, than a father's sense of pride could handle. It was, as, it was as though his impotence was being exposed in front of his wife and children in his own living room. It was killing him. I'd never seen that before. It was very disturbing to me. I... I was reading everything I could get my hands on in those days, uh, and frankly, there wasn't a whole lot written on urban ministry, but I came across a French uh, theologian philosopher by the name of Jacques Ellul, and this quote uh, jumped off the page at me when I read it. Ellul said, almsgiving, that's the old word for charity, almsgiving is mammon's perversion of giving. It affirms the superiority of the giver. It binds him and demands gratitude. It humiliates him and reduces him to a lower state 
than he had before. Can you see why that was such a hard thing for me to hear, for me to read? That wasn't why we were there to diminish anybody. We were there for just the opposite reason, to affirm, to encourage, certainly not to humiliate. So it's, I started looking at everything we were doing, every program that we had started, the clothes closet, that was, that was probably the easiest one to start. You know, we don't wear out our clothes in this culture, except maybe the men do a little. But it's easy to gather it in, and so uh, we did so. Had plenty of room in the old church, and uh, we said these are the free gifts of God's people. Help yourself. And uh, it was a beautiful spirit of sharing until we actually opened the doors and folks came charging in and, get, and, and grabbing up as many armfuls of clothes as they could take out. And then I'd find them scattered around the community, no place to try them on, and realize that's not good stewardship. And so he hastily drew up some rules, posted them. Limit the number of garments per visit. Limit the number of visits per month. Well, that was like saying, let the games begin. Can I get some garments for my kids that are in school? Well, that's reasonable. Can I get some garments for my sick uncle who can't get in here today? You just know where that's going. In no time, we're behaving like, like temple police, guarding the resources of the kingdom against the very folks we were there to serve among. It turned into an adversarial relationship almost overnight. Not at all what we had in mind. We had in mind sharing our resources, sharing our friends, making, making life easier for our neighbors, not, not ending up being somehow guards against our neighbor's greed. The food pantry was... It was always hard to get that equitable. Uh, we would get a donation of a couple dozen canned hams. Well, that's a desired commodity. <laughs> but there's 50 people standing in line. So how do you distribute that equitably? And somebody gets canned corn, and somebody else gets pickled beets. <laughs> and like Elul says... Uh, the system demands gratitude, so folks are saying, yes, thank you, a little bit of smile, but you just don't know what's behind those smiles. You don't know what folks are really feeling. It did anything but build trusting relationships. It did just the opposite. Service project. Now, if you're in an inner city community, uh, there are so many projects that you need help with. And of course, in our culture, we are a very serving culture and kids from churches and businesses and everybody wants to serve. And so I coordinated hundreds of service projects in the city and accomplished some, I think, really good things. We did playgrounds and actually built homes like a habitat model. And I was sitting on my porch one day, my neighbor Virgil from across the street, we were talking about things in the neighborhood, and a 14-passenger and a, a white church van came down the street in front of us real slow, uh, kids in there waving, smiling, obviously there for a, a service project in the community. And Virgil said something that really shocked me. He said, I just hate it when those volunteers come into this community. I said, really? I said, I, I thought you liked volunteers. Volunteers built your house. He said, oh, they do good. But he said, they, they insult you, and they don't even know they're insulting you. He told me about one woman that had volunteered. She'd come into his house and was just going on and on about how neat and clean it was. Well, he said, I know she didn't mean any harm, but... He said, I know what's behind that, that she was surprised that my house didn't fit her expectation of being black folks in the inner city living in hovels. He said, I know what's behind that. 
Another woman that was raving about how smart and well-behaved his children were. He said, oh, she didn't mean harm. But he said, he said, I know that was a surprise to her because she expected something different in the behavior of children in the inner city. He said, they just insult you and they, they don't even know it. I want to tell you a series of these kind of events rocked my world. I thought, we came here to serve, to help, to uplift, and it seems like what we're doing is just the opposite. People are, are somehow deepened in their poverty and in their despair. Started looking at, at this pattern of giving that we were doing. When uh, when I would give somebody something once, it always elicited appreciation. Oh, thank you very much. It's a, it's a surprise. It's a delight. Thanks so much. If I give somebody something twice, it creates a little anticipation. Oh, I wonder, wonder if he's going to continue doing this. I wonder if this is a program that maybe he's starting. A little anticipation there. By the third time, it's created an expectation. I know he does this. I need to position myself so I'm in line for the next installment that's coming out. It's an expectation. And by the fourth time, it's an entitlement. You owe me. I would rather have a ham this Thanksgiving than a turkey, thank you. I have a voice in this. You owe me. And by the fifth time, it's just, it's just dependency. You can't stop now. We're depending on you. We're counting on this. I saw that pattern repeat itself over and over again in the way we were doing our ministry. And I said, it's just got to stop. And so we did. We made that announcement. We're, we're, we're cutting it out. With one exception, that is, if you, if you have a crisis situation, then, of course, we'll address that. Whereupon, the incidence of crises skyrocketed. <laughs> Everybody had a crisis. And we said, no, 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 wait a second, wait a second here. There's a difference between a, a crisis situation and chronic need. A crisis situation is when... Uh, something befalls you over which, a calamity over which you have no control. That's a crisis. Chronic need is as a result of a series of decisions. So a chronic need, a crisis need, uh, when it happens, the right response is an emergency response. That's like when a tornado blows through or a, uh, an earthquake hits Haiti, that's a crisis. And you get in there with all of the life-saving medical supplies and clean water and stuff that helps folk live. But as soon as a crisis has passed and lives have been saved, now it's time to help start rebuilding. Then it becomes a chronic need, and a chronic need requires development response, helping people rebuild, rebuild their homes, rebuild their lives, rebuild their schools. If you address a crisis need with a crisis intervention, lives are saved. It's the right response. On the other hand, if you address a chronic need with a crisis intervention, people are harmed. Let me give you an example of that. You remember when uh, Katrina hit New Orleans? That's been a dozen years ago. That was a crisis. And as a nation, we responded. Uh, wasn't very orderly, as I recall, but it was the right response. I was in New Orleans uh, last year. You know what's going on in that city now, 12 years after Katrina? There are convoys of caring people from all around the country loaded down with emergency supplies 
going into, into New Orleans, distributing these supplies to, quote, the victims of Katrina. Get that? Created a whole victim class of people who are dependent for their very livelihoods on the ongoing outpouring of emergency help, and we've created a dependent culture. That should have stopped within six months after Katrina. People are harmed when you address a chronic need with a crisis. So what about, what about hunger in our land? Is, is hunger crisis or chronic? What do you think? Hmm, might go either way, huh? A little hard to define. How about starvation? Is starvation crisis or chronic? That's easier, isn't it? That's, that's a crisis when people are starving. <clears throat> I've been uh, now in working in the inner city, living there most of that time, the last 46 years. And I have yet to see the first starving person. I've seen folks miss meals. I've seen moms give their kids peanut butter sandwiches the last three days of the month. I've seen a lot of bad nutrition. I've seen homeless guys dumpster dive. But starvation, no. No not in this culture. And yet, when you think about the way we distribute our food in this culture, it's almost always an emergency response to what is 90% of the time chronic need. There is a reason why the poor remain poor in our culture. And it may not be as much their fault as it is those who are trying to assist them. Remember the old adage, uh, feed a man a fish, eats for a day, teach him to fish, eats for a lifetime, remember that? Well, we've got fish feeding stations all over this culture that are feeding folks when they should be fishing classes to teach people how to catch their own fish. It's time for a major change, a major shift in our paradigm of service. And so he said, well, what are we going to do? Well, we, we said, uh, we, uh, first of all, we got to narrow our focus in. We can't, we can't meet the needs of people all over metro Atlanta. We got to narrow it down to our own community, at least we'll have accountable relationships there. At least we know more what's going on in people's lives. And then we've got to change the way we're, we're viewing our neighbors. Instead of seeing our neighbors as people in need, we've got to start seeing them as people with resources, people with capacities, people with abilities, and we've got to remind ourselves that there is no one so poor in our community that they have nothing to bring to the table. Everybody has something of value to bring to the table. Now, admittedly, there are, there are some populations that are it's a little bit more uh, difficult to identify what they have to bring. Like, uh, we have a lot of uh, homebound uh, seniors in our community. Uh, the Meals on Wheels recipients, and so what do they have to bring to the table? Well, they're the ones that are always looking out through the Venetian blinds at everything that's going on on the street out there, and they're on the phone talking to their neighbors up and down the street. That's your crime watch. Those are very valuable people if they're organized and affirmed engaged in the life of the community. Those are very valuable people. What about those darn kids that spray graffiti all over everything and just mess up the community? 
Right down through the middle of our neighborhood, there's a, an eight-foot-high corrugated metal fence, stretches for two blocks, junkyard on the other side, and it's all covered with graffiti. And uh, so he got into a conversation with some of those kids that are doing the graffiti. H have you ever noticed that some of that graffiti is rather artful? We thought, well, I wonder if, wonder if there's some talent in here. So we had a meeting with a couple of those kids, and we said, would you guys be willing to paint some, uh, like, some good messages or some murals or something to make our community look better? We'll buy all the spray cans. And they said they would agree to do that. And so over the last, uh, next several, several Saturdays, uh, those kids were out there, and some other neighbors with them uh, spray painting, uh, making that... Making that Ugly wall looked pretty. Uh, we found out that there was some significant talent that those kids had. As a matter of fact, the two kids that painted that, that about 20-foot stretch, that's a mural. That's beautiful. We hired them. We said, could we commission you to do a mural like that on the side of our ministry center? And they were delighted. And so we hired them and bought all the spray cans they needed, and they, they did a, a beautiful picture. Go ahead and show that on the side of our ministry center. That's been four years ago. There's not a speck of graffiti on that anywhere. There's some talent there. Everybody has something of value to bring to the table in the community. I think it is the responsibility of those of us who are the stewards of resources to create those systems of reciprocity, of exchange, so that everyone can have a role in the life of the community. Then we adopted what has become our golden rule for effective service, never do for others what they have the capacity to do for themselves. You get that? Never do for others what they have the capacity to do for themselves. When you do for others what they can do, you take a load onto your own shoulders that was never intended for you to carry. You've taken responsibility away from them. You disempower people when you take a load from them that they should be and have the capacity to carry. And so armed with, uh, with those new insights, we went through and retooled all of our programs. The, uh, the first one, of course, was, uh, well, it came up the second Christmas that we were there in the city that adopted. A, a parent, adopt a uh, family for Christmas. Uh, we changed the name of that, incidentally. We changed it to Pride for Parents. And as folks started calling in to get their adopted family, we said, uh, would you be willing to give an extra gift this year? And we said, yeah. They, they said, what's that? And we said, would you be willing to give the gift of dignity to the dads? And here's how you do it. Go shopping. Buy the toys, don't wrap them. Bring them down, and we'll set up a little storefront. We'll call it the old toy shop. Uh, and we'll, uh, we'll put somewhere between a wholesale and a garage sale price on those toys. And we'll invite parents to come in and go shopping. So on Christmas morning, the parents in our community will have the same joy that most parents have in our culture of seeing their children open the gifts that they have selected and purchased through the efforts of their own hands. And there will be dignity in the process of exchange. Well, that's a quantum leap, asking folk to let us sell the toys that they're used to giving. But we said, look, what we'll do with the proceeds of this is uh, we'll create an employment training program for unemployed parents that will train and move them out into the economic workforce so that this time next Christmas, some of those parents will be fully supporting of their own families. Well, when we explained that, that made sense to folk. 
I said, do you know that extra, that the extra gift that I mentioned? Do you know, you remember how that feels when you give those kids those gifts and you see the excitement on their faces? You know what a rush of emotion that is? That's what I want you to give to the dads so that on Christmas morning, they have that rush of excitement in seeing their kids open the gifts that they have purchased. Now, there's some that are going to be unemployed. They don't have any money. Well, we're creating cash flow here. That means we can put folks to work, and they can earn what they need to buy the toys that they want for their children. We learned a couple really important lessons that first Pride for Parents Christmas. One, we learned uh, that everyone loves bargains. It's a, youth, it's a universal truth. Everybody loves to find a bargain. Peggy came home this last Christmas, a grueling day of Christmas shopping, and spread out her treasures all around the living room for me to admire. And she said, and you know what? She said, I saved more than I spent. <laughs> I'm not an economist. Somebody understands that high finance can explain that. But, but she was excited about finding bargains. So why do we think it would be such a blessing to the poor to create a system that deprives them of the joy of finding and purchasing garments and toys for their own family? We also learn that our parents would a whole lot rather work to earn, to purchase the toys that they knew would delight their, their kids then they would stand in the free toy lines with their proof of poverty and accept what others had purchased for their kids. We found that out. The clothes closet, well, uh, that adversarial relation. Do we happen to have any Methodists in this room tonight? <laughs> okay, I'm safe. Um, the Methodist men's group that had helped me collect a lot of, lot of clothing. And I was telling them uh, this, this adversarial dilemma that we had. And they said, well, there's a simple answer to that. Methodist men are really smart. They, they can figure out things. They don't even have to be there. They said, oh, yeah, there's a simple answer to that. It's called, it's called the market. You put a fair rate of exchange on a desired commodity, it cuts all that out. Really? I said, oh, yeah. So I said, would you help us set that up? Well, they had, a, they had a meeting, and they said, yeah, we'll take this on as our men's missions project this year. And so those guys set about doing what they cannot help doing even in their sleep. <laughs> Got to have a business plan, traffic flow patterns, real estate research, shop the competition. We got to bring this in right underneath Goodwill Industries thrift store. <laughs> We do this right, we can turn it into a training program in retail merchandising. Should take a couple of years for a small business like this to, to break even. And they were, they were pretty accurate. It was about 18 months later after we converted the clothes closet to the, to the little thrift store that it moved into the black economically and uh, has been a bright spot in the community ever since. And those guys were absolutely right. It changed the dynamic totally. The dynamic between, between giver and recipient, where the giver has to guard against the recipient getting too much, and the relationship between merchant and customer, where the merchant needs the customer to buy all that she can afford to buy, because that's how he keeps the lights on. That's how he makes payroll. And it changed that dynamic totally. And our four trainees figured out pretty quickly that unless they had sales and repeat customers, uh, their paychecks were riding on that. And so there was discussion about what do we do to make folk want to come back? Well, they said, at least we ought to get everybody's name down. And if we can find out something about them, make sure we, we write that down. So Ms. Jones comes 
into the store on a Tuesday morning, and, and they say, good morning, Miss Jones, call her by name, good morning. How's your mother doing? Everybody wants to go where everybody knows their name. We could do a sitcom on that, couldn't we? One of, the, uh, one of the questions, well, we jumped in a van, went out to see how the big stores do it, and they were taking notes. And the debrief was really fascinating. They said, we, uh, well, the big for sale racks were right there when you come through the door. And uh, all the hangers were going the same way. They were all sized. People were very friendly. They had latest fashion arrivals right out there. One of the women said, yeah, you know, and those stores smell nice, too. You know, when you're dealing with used clothing, sometimes it can be a bit stale, and you can't afford to dry clean everything. And so they started thinking about, okay, how could we make our store smell nicer? And one of the women said, well, we could have a pot of fresh brewed coffee going in the morning. That'd help. And another one said, yeah, we could do some microwave cookies. That, that'd help. And so you come walking in the store, and the aroma of fresh brewed coffee and pastries greets your nostril. That's about making people feel valued. That's a totally different dynamic than needing to guard against them. It's a, it's a magical gift that God has given to humanity of every culture. It's called the economy. It's called exchange. It's like Tim is growing uh, a good crop of tomatoes this year. And Mike, where's Mike? Mike is growing, uh, he's, he's, he's raising corn, he's got more than his family needs. Well, they bring their surplus to the bargaining table, and they work out an exchange of so many ears of corn for so many tomatoes. And if they do the deal well, magic happens. They both leave feeling like they got more value than they brought. That's magic. That's why Peggy was so excited. She got more value than she brought in, in her way of thinking. <laughs> it's a gift of God to humanity. The gift of exchange, where everybody has something to bring to the table. Why do we think it would be such a blessing to the poor to exclude them from that process of exchange through a one-way, be-satisfied-with-my-gift dynamic? The food pantry, well, we said, uh, we did a little research. We said, anybody interested here in a, in a food co-op? Well, they didn't know what that was. He said, well, it's like a, a, sort of like a buying club. You put in $5, and uh, we, we combine that with our food pantry dollars. We go over to the Atlanta Community Food Bank. And as a nonprofit, we can, we can buy a lot of food for a little bit of money. And so there were about a dozen women that said, yeah, we'd like to try that. And so we took our run to the food bank and came back with an amazing amount of food. And they were just, uh, they were amazed and they, the word got out, and others wanted to join. Before long, we had, we had 40 people that wanted in the co-op. Well, the, the first issue that came up was uh, our staff guy wasn't bringing the right assortment of food back. And there was some grumbling about that. And so he said, well, why don't you, why don't you elect, elect a buyer? Somebody get your grocery list. And so they did. Well, that was, the, that was the first organizational step of that little co-op. The next thing that came up was, uh, what if somebody's sick and can't get in here for their groceries? Uh, do we deliver it? Well, that's a big discussion. Well, who would deliver it? Do we want to have outreach like this? And they said, yeah, that, that might be good. So it was a first step of, of taking care of their members. Another issue that came up was credit. What if somebody doesn't have their $5 this week? Do we extend them credit? Well, that wasn't our decision to make. 
Uh, it was a decision of those that had skin in the game. It was their $5 that would be put at risk. And so there was a big discussion about that. Who was credit worthy? And do you, do you kick them out if they don't pay in a certain time? Big discussion. And well into that discussion, the issue uh, came up. So, uh, we're making some decisions here. We need, to, we need to be writing this down. And so they elected a secretary. And then somebody's got to keep track of who's paid and who hasn't. And so they elected a treasurer, somebody that was kind of good with numbers. You see what was happening here? The talents and the abilities that had been there all along that we never saw when people were standing in our, in our free food distribution, those talents were there all along. We just didn't have a system that facilitated the use of those gifts. That turned into a food was always, always an issue. Uh, remember uh, one lady... Uh, was talking about Mabel's sweet potato pie. She said, it's to die for. And so they prevailed upon Mabel to bring in a sweet potato pie, which she did, and everybody took a little sample, and they oohed and awed, and uh, that gave rise to others bringing in their culinary treats. And uh, so they were starting to, uh, to treat each other. And a couple of the ladies said, uh, would it be possible for us to fix a meal from the food that we're getting here? Uh, in the church kitchen. And we said, yeah, that'd be fine. And so they started fixing a hot meal from the food that they were getting from the food bank, which over time eliminated the need for our suburban church partners to bring a hot meal in to feed the poor of our community because they were doing it themselves. reciprocal kinds of relationships that bring out the talents and the ability and in the process encourage the gifts that God has given us. So I said to Virgil, we're sitting on the porch, and I said, Virgil, should we just cut out these service projects? Is it, is it just too hard on the folks here in the neighborhood? And he said, no, no, he said... He said, they do good. He said, but I'll tell you what would help. He said, it'd be a whole lot better if we here in the neighborhood decided on what projects were important to us and what we wanted help with. Oh, I wrote that one down, community initiated. He said, I'll tell you another thing. He said, it'd be a whole lot better if we kind of organized and managed those projects. He says, it's, it's hard to take orders from outsiders coming into our community. It'd be a whole lot better if we gave the leadership for that, write that one down. He said, you know those church folks, they seem to think that, that we're pagans, like we don't know anything about faith. He said, I think they're the ones that don't know anything about faith. He said, I don't think any of them have been in a position where they've run out of money and run out of food and run out of friends and have nobody to cling to except God, and God does miracles for them? He said, I don't think they know anything about that kind of faith. He said, it sure be a lot better if we could sit down sometime during the workday and share how God is at work in our lives and in our community. Wrote that one down. Mutual evangelism. So uh, it changed our ministry, turned it upside down, changed all the rules. Uh, and in the process, we said, we need, we need a code of ethics like, like the physicians have. They've got the Hippocratic Oath, and uh, that gives them ethical guidelines for medical practice. We need something like that. And so uh, I'm going to leave that, uh, that oath that our folks take with you. Number one, that's our golden rule. I'll never do for others what they have the capacity to do for themselves. When I do that, I disempower rather than empower. Number two, 
I'll limit my one-way giving to emergencies, but seek always to find ways for legitimate exchange. Number three, I'll empower those in need through hiring, lending, and investing. Hiring, that's when Michael comes to the office and he wants to, uh, he wants to wash our company van and uh, usually needs it, and I am happy to pay him $25, and he does a good job. There are some on my staff who have said, you're just, uh, you're just enabling him. He's going to take that money out, he's going to get high on it. You know he's homeless half the time anyhow. You're just playing into his destructive patterns. And I said, no. Hiring is a legitimate exchange. Michael gets fair compensation for a job well done, and when he leaves, he leaves as a man with his dignity intact. And he is free to make whatever decision, for good or for ill, whatever decision he chooses with what he has earned. Hiring is a dignifying, affirming way to interact with those in need. Now, now, if I gave him $25, well, that'd be a whole different thing. Then I'd feel a sense of responsibility to make sure he used it right. Not in hiring. Lending. That's when, uh, when, when Janice comes to my door and asks for $20 till Saturday. I give it to her without even thinking about it. Because I know that come Saturday, she'll be back with my $20. She's got a cash flow problem. Uh, but she'll be there. I trust her. But Ethel, now Ethel is a little different. Ethel will ask for $20, but I'll say, you know, we need to discuss that last loan that I gave you because uh, uh, that needs to be cleared up before we talk about any more money here. Lending brings accountability into the relationship. It brings trust into the relationship. It, it cleans up relationships. Investing, well, that's when Daryl, uh, good house painters, worked for a company. He wants to go into business himself. Doesn't have the capital to start it. It's not, it's not all that expensive. Uh, and so he asks if I'll be an investor. Well, uh, I think that's a good idea. I think he has the potential of, uh, of doing well, particularly if we, we give him some, uh, some guidance. And uh, so I get some other friends, and we put up the money to uh, capitalize his business, and we are co-investors with him. And it becomes very important to us that his business succeeds because we have skin in that game. And so we'll talk to our friends and contacts to get him additional painting jobs because we're in this thing together. Investing may be the highest form of, of charity. Making money with the poor. Not making money on the poor. Not making money for the poor. But making money with the poor may well be the highest form of charity. Number four, I'll put the interests of the poor above my own organization or uh, even, even though it may mean setting aside my own agenda. We had a, uh, one of our staff women went to an international education conference some years ago over in Africa. And uh, during one of the breaks, they were, some educators were talking, and at her table, uh, the subject of mission trips came up. And one of the African educators said, there's, you know, there's something about you Americans that I have never understood. He said, what is it about you that loves to paint so much? <laughs> and she said, uh, in our village, when the Americans were coming, they'd let us out of school early and tell us to go out and get mud and, and, and just mess up the outside of the school building because the Americans needed something to paint. <laughs> she said that whole school was painted four different times 
the three years I was a student there, she said, I just have never figured that out, what it is about painting you love so much. Well, you do have to ask the question at some point, whose agenda is this? Five, I'll listen carefully to both the spoken and unspoken needs of those I would serve, knowing that many clues may be hidden. We had a group come back from Haiti some months ago and uh, were telling me that uh, coming through this little village, they saw mothers sitting out in front of little shacks with infants in their arms wrapped in soiled rags and newspapers. And it just broke their hearts. And so they went into the city and bought up a bunch of baby blankets and, and gave those baby blankets to those moms so they would have something warm and clean and soft to wrap their infants in. The following day when they came back through the village, they saw those blankets in the shops along the street. Those women had sold those blankets. And our, and our volunteers were incensed Till the person on the ground said they sold the blankets for food for their babies. Their real need is food. Well, well, how do you know that? How do you know that unless you've spent some time with folks, unless you've sat beside folks, unless you know their heartbeat? Well, that just takes time, and that implies, that implies relationships. You know how long it was before Virgil confronted me about the difficulties and the way we were doing our service project? You know how long that was? Five years. Five years before Virgil had enough confidence in our relationship to confront me on something that wasn't working well. Listening to the expressed and unexpressed needs of those we serve. And then uh, the final one, number six, it's the same as the final tenet of the Hippocratic Oath. Above all, to the best of my ability, I will do no harm. Amen? Amen. 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 Pray with me, will you? Our God, we're grateful that you have entrusted the work of eternity to folks like us. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to serve in your name. Thank you for the talents that you've entrusted to us and the resources. We want to do an increasingly better job and a more responsible job and more fruitful job for the sake of your kingdom. Empower us anew, we ask in the name of Jesus, amen.